I did receive a couple of phone calls this afternoon, and the folks at Fayetteville send their best regards to you. I understand that some of them are currently listening on their computers as you are working together with them to stream this in through our system there, and we're grateful for that. A side note, folks at home, I've been a good boy. Uh, Jim and Sandy Garner were here last night to testify to that, check with them. They have a signed bulletin saying I was here. I do appreciate so much your shepherds having the desire that we would talk about involvement. You know, involvement is a key to church growth. It's a key to any endeavor that we put forth to do, and we must get involved. We must be working. And it is so with the body of Christ. And we looked at yesterday involvement for the sake of Jesus or for Jesus' sake Last night we looked at involvement for my sake, and tonight we want to look at involvement for the lost sake. I believe that we have taken our focus off to the point that the world is passing us by, and we seem to have forgotten those of us who are the blood-bought, the purchased the church, the ecclesia, the called out, the place where the saved dwell, the fellowship of God's believers, God's children, his domain. I believe we have forgotten that the lost means something to us. They are of importance to the church. They are a priority for the church. They should be and need to be a focus of the church, those of us who are God's elect. Tonight, I want us to take note of just how important the lost are to the church. We are at war. Hear me again, church. We are at war. I'm not speaking of the United States at war with terrorists and those who would seek to harm us. I'm not speaking of the war that we're fighting. I'm not speaking of the war that our young men and women are engaged in across uh, this globe. I'm not speaking of that war. I'm not going to give an opinion of that war of what I think. I do know this, that we as the United States of America, years down the road in the future, we will not be the United States of America today as we know it. For we today are not the United States that our grandparents knew and that your grandparents knew. We are changing, and for various reasons, but I'm not here to speak on that tonight concerning the war that we're in, but you and I are in war, spiritual war, and the devil is our enemy, and we are his targeted population. Church, we need to understand this fact more than we've understood anything before. I want you to think with me for just a minute. Brother Paul made us aware that we are at war in Ephesians chapter 6. He tells us how to arm ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he tells us what weapons we need to use. We are at war, and we are at war with the devil, and we are at war over the souls of men and women. But we're his targeted population. Now, I want you to pay close attention, and I'm going to speak in my southern vernacular, which I understand the best, and I'll do my best to communicate with you. And if you're... From above the Mason-Dixon line and you need a translation of what I say, I'll be happy to give you that if I am able. Listen to me. If the devil ain't got you, he's after you. Now let's think about who he's got. 
He's got those of our friends and neighbors who are confused, those people who do not understand the purity of the truth that's laid out in the gospel that is told by in the Holy Scripture, those who have been uh, led astray, those who don't have an understanding, those who cease to be students of the Word, but students of men who have led them astray. The devil's got them. All he needs to do is throw a little flash in the pulpit of those of our denominational friends. All he's got to do is send out another little bit of growth for them and they will think that might equals right and that because they have large numbers they're doing what's right and God's blessing them. And the devil has them right where he wants them. Fooled, fat, happy, and just sassy. The devil's got them. The atheist. The devil's got him. He says there is no God, and all that the devil's got to do is throw out there just a little bit more of information about how many billion years old this earth is and and all of the things that go around with that and just throw that we found out another thing that leads to evolution and that there really is no God, and he's got the atheist. As Brother Foy Wallace would say, put a peg there. I want to say something about evolution. Folks, we had better get serious about teaching our young people the truth of what, where we came from. Our colleges and our universities and our schools and our elementary schools and God forbid the TV that we allow in our home, which becomes the second parent, sometimes the first parent, is telling our children that we all evolved from something. Oh, that we are here as a result of evolution. And evolution says that all it needs is enough time between something and something will come from nothing. And we will all evolve. That's ridiculous. I don't care how much time you give a gerbil, it will never give birth to a giraffe. And we need to be able to teach our young people that it was the great God of heaven, the power of this universe, through his son Jesus Christ, that made this world and sustains this world and one day will destroy this world. I believe in global warming. I believe the Bible teaches it. It's going to happen real quick. There's going to be a big horn sound and then everything's going to burn up. That's biblical global warming. The rest of it in... My humble observation is just a bunch of hogwash. The devil's got the atheist. The devil has those who believe. He's got those who don't believe. Who is he after then? We're his targeted population. Those of us who are the mighty army of Jesus Christ. Those of us who have been washed in the Lamb's blood. The perfect sacrifice. The one that he has done everything that he could. Revelation chapter 12. Did everything that he could to destroy the Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Has done everything from the beginning of time. From garden in Genesis chapter 3 number 6. Where we see the pivotal point in the Bible. Where man's sin. The devil had victory on that day. And a promised Messiah was given and he has done everything that he can to bring him down and when he couldn't contain him in the grave and when we had victory over death through Jesus Christ he then has come after those who have chosen to surrender their life and be a part of his family the family of God through the blood of Jesus Christ and we are his targeted population and he wants to do two things to us Number one, he wants to cast in our mind doubt. Remember the parable in Matthew chapter 13 that Jesus told? He told several, but the one I'm speaking of is the parable of the dirt. And he talks about how that 
Um, a sower went sowing, and the seed equal was the gospel, and then it was thrown on hard ground. And remember what it says, the wicked one would come and steal that seed away. That's where he'd like to keep everybody ignorant. And then he talks about those where the seed took, and then the sun came up, and it, because it was shallow and the ground was not what it needed to be, that it was choked out. When everyday living came and it was choked out. And then he talks about the seed that fell on the ground and then the, <clears throat> it took root. But then the weeds came in and took it away. By the way, I like what Jesus said this is. And I believe this is where you and I, most of us are going to get hit. Those of us who are part of the body. Remember that seed did take. It is representative of Christians. But he said that the, that equals the weeds are the deceitfulness of riches. When we get so big for our britches that we think we can do it without God and that we've done all we've done and we've got all we've got because of us and we get back on a routine of where we're on a you owe me God idea, that's when we're going to be God. And then there's that fourth soul that took and it produced a hundredfold. If the devil can steal out of our minds our security in Christ and make us doubt our security, First John says that we can know. We need to understand, and I talked about this yesterday, that we are saved and saved completely by Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 3. That he by himself purged us from our sins, folks. He did it, him alone. The Father didn't do it, the Spirit didn't do it, an angel didn't do it, a good man didn't do it. Jesus did it, and Jesus alone. And all you've got to do is obey, and he will save you also. The devil wants you to think you're not saved. He wants to scare you to death. You're not doing enough. You're not, you're not here enough. You're not this enough. And bring doubt in your mind. And what will that do? That will stifle you from sharing the word. That's what the devil wants us to do. And then his targeted population. He wants us to sit back and do nothing. And in this war we're fighting. And the war's not over yet. Oh, we've got victory. We're going to win. But we're still battling for the souls of men. And I'm not so sure that the devil doesn't have a hand up on us. Because are we marching through this world as a mighty force for God with the gospel of Jesus Christ? We've got some good things going. We've got satellites that proclaim the gospel 24-7. We've got missionaries on the field. I think we could be liberal in a number and say from the United States, we may have a thousand families represented on the, represented on the mission field. Brother Yakely uh, doesn't give an exact number on that, but that's being liberal. Uh, we've got house-to-house, heart-to-heart that's going into the homes of many people. And I think it's a wonderful tool. We've got truth for the World, I believe the DVD is called, that's very inexpensive, that we can pass out. But there's one element, brothers and sisters, that I believe that we're forgetting. We're forgetting the personal touch. We're forgetting that my mouth to their ear, to the lost ear, me getting involved in the lives of people and sharing with them the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. I can put it on a satellite. I can put it on a DVD. I can put it on a piece of paper. But listen to me. If we're going to be the New Testament church, we're going to get out there and we're going to do it person to person. And here we sit trying to do what we need to do while evil takes over the world. Satan has stifled us. 
And we've got to get involved for the lost's sake. With that said, how lost are the lost? Listen, if you have your copy of the text, turn to Genesis chapter 6. I want us to look at God's view of sin. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse number 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth and it grieved him at his heart. Sin breaks the very heart of God. Psalm 5. Verses 6 and heaven, 7. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leases. The Lord will abhor the bloody and the deceitful man. What does God think about sin? God hates it. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. These six doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. God hates the very idea of sin. It separates us from him. It leaves a void. Sin within itself stirs the hatred of God Almighty. And it's a sad state of affairs for those who find themselves in the grip of sin. Why get involved for the law's sake? We don't have a choice. I want us to think about words that are used to describe the condition of lost man. Sin. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 23. That book is so amazing there as Brother Paul writes, our brethren in Italy. And he says to them in the first chapter, Gentiles, listen up. You're without excuse to the point that your minds have become reprobate that that which is wrong you do as though it were good. And then he says, Jews, don't you get so high and mighty there judging one another. You're without excuse too. You've had God in your very midst and you've turned your back on him. And then he says in chapter number three, if you're not a Jew or a Gentile, and I don't know who's not, but that we're all without excuse for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I wish we had time to explore the book of Romans and go through chapters four, five, six, and seven, then reach the pinnacle of doctrine in that book, chapter eight. And then we see the sadness of Israel's history, where they are present in chapter 10, where Paul would have them be in chapter 11. In chapter 12, we learn how to live. We begin to see victory. I wish we had time for that book, but we don't. Sin separates. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, sin is known as, or being at odds with God, is known as transgression. That's to step against or across God's fixed boundary. Sin is to miss the mark. Transgression is to step across God's fixed boundary. And then iniquity, Isaiah 59, your iniquities have separated you. And that is which deviates from God's standard. That's what sin is. And the lost are wrapped up in sin for they don't know God's standard. They don't know what the mark is. They don't know where God has drawn his line. And unless you and I get up off our pews of self-righteousness and tell them, they'll 
march into eternity to a devil's hell without the gospel ever being told to them. And shame on us. This is a reality that we've got to be aware of. Sin reigns in this world. If you don't believe it, just look around. I've never in my life seen such. I live in Atlanta, one of the largest metropolitan areas in the United States, and what's on the news makes me sick. That which is against nature itself is paraded as though it were the standard. Homosexuality is billed as an alternative lifestyle, and they have rights, and we don't have rights, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's not what God said. We have rape happening all the time, talked about on TV, to the point that it is glamorized. God says it is sinful. We talk about, I just saw this afternoon while I was getting ready, talking about a celebrity getting married and the millions of dollars that was spent. And she doesn't have a right to that man. Her public life says that she doesn't. And yet it's glorified as one of the weddings of this new century. Sin abounds. Drunkenness. The lack of a respect for authority. Last night we went across the street and had some barbecue. By the way, I like your barbecue with a little slaw on the sandwich. Don't make good sense to me, but it tastes good. The other night when I went in, I went to a restaurant where Bill Powers had taken me last year. And the lady asked me if I wanted slaw on my sandwich. And I looked at her like she was crazy because I'd done told her I wanted slaw as a side item. And she says, do you want it on your sandwich? And I said, why would I? And she said, you're not from here. I said, no, ma'am, I'm not. And I had forgotten. We went across the street to eat last night. And this is an assumption, but I believe it to be a reality. We were standing in the parking lot, the gardeners and myself, and all of a sudden, this guy at the service station jumped in his car. And we would call it in my day as a teenager. He burnt rubber getting out of there and ran red lights. And fortunately, there was a police far off, not far off who saw it and stopped him not far down the highway. We could see the blue lights. My guess is he was stealing gas. And yet we glamorize stuff like that. Sin's nothing new to our society. It's nothing new to this old world. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 6, when the devil ushered his wickedness into this world through temptation, and Adam and Eve both succumbed to that by their choice. Well, we see sin and how awful it gets. Galatians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3. The sin list in the New Testament. All of these things bother me when it comes to the lost. But there's one that plagues my mind more than anything, and I challenge you to take your copy of the scripture and go with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The brethren there were under distress, tribulation, they were having difficult times. And Brother Paul writes them and he shares with them some encouragement. Most of the epistles deal with uh, persecution or with false teachers. And in all of the epistles you can find encouragement. 
Brother Peter writes, the brethren who had been dispersed, those who were around and gives them encouragement because of the persecution they were suffering. James, early on in the Christian faith, writes and tells brethren how to live and gives them encouragement. A recipe, how to resist the devil and he will flee. Brother Paul, in all of his letters, deals with false teachers and to be aware of them who will take away and leaves everyone with encouragement. And he's doing that in this second letter to the brethren at Thessalonica. He talks about how that they are being persecuted and they're under tribulation. And then he says in verse number 6, Seeing it is a righteous thing, it is a right thing uh, with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Now he says, listen, verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Put your finger right there and... Put a peg in your mind and let me say something. If tonight was the night that the Father sent our Savior back to gather us up, would it be well with your soul? I love that old song, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh the thought. Oh, is it well with your soul? When Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, listen to this, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Do you see something there? There's two class of people that are lost. Those who have not heard. And brethren, that scares me to death in a world that is hurling towards 7 billion in population. And yet there are those who don't know the saving power of Jesus Christ. What are we doing about it? Oh, we think of deepest, darkest Africa. We think of the remotest parts of the European continent. We think of the islands that are scattered throughout the Pacific and the Caribbean. But I'm asking you, what about the people of Olive Branch, Mississippi? What are you doing? They've never had a chance. They think all is well. And they're traveling down the road satisfied with the status quo only to wake up in eternity in the reality of a devil's hell because we didn't get the message to them. I understand and I have some... uh, a sense of soothing my conscience with those that have made the choice not to obey the gospel. Those demises that have gone out from us who have obeyed and left us. Those who are in the bonds of sin again and the Simons of today. Those who have turned back to their wallet. I can soothe my conscience to say they've heard and they've told and they've been warned. I can handle that. I can handle maybe those who have been taken away by the, the wolves in sheep's clothing. They had a chance. They heard. They obeyed. And they made a choice to leave. But what about those who have never heard? Brethren, what are we doing for the lost sake? 
In my humble observation, there's only one answer, and it's Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Peter, Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It's not a flowery story we tell. It's not something that's unbelievable. No, it's believable because it's a reality. We preach Jesus and him crucified. It's a simple message. It's one that can be told with compassion, not only with the very inspired word of God to back up what you and I say, but history also backs it up. That we have a father in heaven who loves us to the point that he sent his son to live and to die. And now he reigns as king over his church, doing all that he can to have you become a part of the saved. And he has left it in my hands and your hands to share the saving message. And we can do it. Can we not? You sit silent. We can do it. Can we not? We're short learners. We don't remember very long. I know, I know. This means yes. This means no. This means I don't know. We can do it. Can we not? We can do it. And until we get motivated with the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have love for the souls of men and women and we get serious about this war, if we don't do it, we'd better be careful lest we become a casualty of this spiritual war and lose our own soul. We need to preach Jesus and him crucified. And we need a motivated army to do it. February of 2008 marked 15 years from the event. It was one that I'll never forget. We had traveled for the second time in a row to northern Russia. We, like the saints in Mary's house, had prayed that that Russian wall, that iron curtain would come down like they prayed for Peter to get out of jail. The curtain came down and we kind of stood around for a few minutes wondering what to do. We hadn't prepared for God to answer the prayer just like they hadn't prepared for Peter to get out of jail. Rhoda says it's Peter. They, in essence, tell her she's crazy. The iron curtain came down. And we went for the second year in 1993. It was in February. On a warm day, it was 10 below zero. That's my kind of weather. We had gone through that country that had been deprived of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the ability to recognize God as a nationality, as a people. For over 70 years, the very places in which they worshipped, and it was in vain worship, though it was worship, that they could know about God had been taken away from them. Five hundred miles northeast of Moscow on a train that took us sixteen hours to get there to the city of Kirov, we stepped off the city, and when we got there, the brethren that had been converted the year before said there's a village, Kotelnich, that's not ever heard the gospel. We're gonna go. We rented a bus and we went to Kotelnich. They had rented a auditorium there in their cultural center. They had put the word out that missionaries from America were coming. And that we would have Bibles to give out. We traveled 
the distance, which seemed to be about 30 minutes, and we got to a point because the roads were so bad and the ice was so high and the snow was so uh, frozen that the bus couldn't go any further. It started sliding. But we got out and we walked, probably in our way of measuring it was a mile, and that 20 below weather wrapped up in our big coats and our big fur hats. And we got there, and the people, 500, if I'm not mistaken, were in that room sitting very quietly, patiently waiting on us to get there. It fell my lot that night to give the gospel presentation. We always presented the truth and then allowed people to come and share with us if they would like to study further, and we would set up studies for the next day. That was probably in the first part of the week while we were there. That night we had taken Bibles and we told them that we were sorry that we couldn't carry the Bibles because it was so far to walk, but that we would bring them back the next night. They walked that night in the dark, in the cold, followed us to the bus to give out Bibles. I stood in the door of the bus and people behind me were handing Bibles and they were standing with their hands reaching and grabbing and I saw an old babushka, that's an old Russian grandma. That's a term of endearment. Standing in the crowd, trying to reach, and she couldn't, and tears were rolling down her face. Her head was very covered. All I could see was her face. And I asked somebody to take my place, and I began to fight the crowd. They said, don't go out there, Jeff. They'll, They'll thinking you're coming with Bibles. And I said, I'll be all right. And I went to that babushka, and I handed her a Bible, and she kissed the Bible, and she kissed me, and I said, we will see you tomorrow. And I... She didn't understand what I said, but she, we communicated. She came the next night to the gospel presentation and had a Bible study. And the following day, we took her to the health center there and in a pool of water, baptized her. She came up out of that water and I didn't baptize her. I'm, I'm not big into that. Uh, if I need to, I will, but I'd prefer somebody else to get all wet and sloppy. I'd like to sit out on the outside and tear up and sing. But the babushka came to me and she was sobbing uncontrollably. I would dare say, as far as looks, she looked to be 80 or 90 years old, but I know because of the culture and the way of life over there, she probably wasn't. She may have been in her late 60s. And I got a translator to come over, and and I said to the translator, what is she saying? And they tried to comfort her and pat her because she just couldn't get her words out because she was, well, we've all been there crying to the point that we can't talk. And we both sat down in an old bench. It wasn't a pew. It was just a bench. And me on one side and the translator on the other patting her, comforting her, but we just weren't doing any good. And the translator began to look at her and said, tell me why you're crying. This is a happy time, but you're not happy. Tell me why. Tell me why. And the babushka kept saying back to the translator in her native tongue, why, why, why? And I finally got to the translator and said, why what? And she calmed the babushka down. And she got out of the babushka, why so long? He died three weeks ago. The man that she loved the most, her husband, 
had died three weeks before we got there with the gospel. Many days don't go by that I don't think about that babushka. Chances are she's gone on to her reward. It's been 15 years. I can still hear her say, why did it take so long? If I understand this book, this book says that she died a Christian because she was a believer who had repented of her sins and confessed her belief in Jesus, was immersed in water to have her sins washed away. And based upon what I saw as a surrender, which brings on commitment, she lived faithful to, if she is dead, I'm assuming she is, that she'll have a home in eternity with the Father, but without the man that she loved as her husband. All because we were three weeks late. That's just what the devil wanted. We've got to come up off of our pews of self-righteousness. And we've got to stop thinking, church, that when we drop a, a, a contribution in the plate for world broadcasting, for DVDs, for written materials that are all wonderful and good that we've done our part, we haven't. Until we get out there with the message and share it with those who are lost. We haven't fought the battle. We've only supported the battle. If you're here tonight. And you've not involved yourself in this war we fight for the souls of men. I beg you. Let's don't be three weeks late again. If you're not a Christian. I gave you that plan that that babushka followed. You can follow it too and you'll be a Christian. If you're here tonight and you've left the body, you've told Jesus you don't need him anymore, you've done disdain, you've said, I don't need a part of this. Well, I believe time still marches on because God's waiting on his stray children to come home. We're here tonight. If you need our prayers of encouragement, if you need help in getting involved in the battle, you let us know. We'll pray for you. We'll encourage you. We'll show you how we fight. But we don't have a choice to, but to get involved for the sake of the lost. Tonight, if we can help you in any way, please come while together we stand in sync.